Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 16. The section mainly deals with the qualifications, qualifications for deacons. Our context is this. The first seven verses of 1 Timothy dealt with the qualifications of elders. So we start now in verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, Deacons, likewise, must be, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, deacons are not, much, not mentioned much in the New Testament. They're not mentioned at all in Second Timothy and Titus, the other two pastoral epistles. The office and function of deacons is never defined in the New Testament, as the commentator Ellison points out. Many people assume that they're mentioned in Acts 6, Remember the early church had trouble between the Hellenistic and Hebrew Jews, and the Hellenistic Jews were getting shortchanged on the distribution of food that was held in common, and so the apostles said, we don't have time to mess with this. We're trying to teach the doctrine, so they got table servers, and by their names you can tell they were mostly Greeks to take care of the Hellenistic Jews' problems. It's a very famous story, but it never calls them deacons, and a lot of people just assume they're deacons, but it's an assumption without fact, actually. So they may or may not have been deacons. Ellison says it's unlikely that they were deacons. The term literally means to raise dust, and that's a perfect metaphor for menial service because deacons were, they did service. They served people. The word, the Greek word from which deacon is derived means to serve. They're servants, not managers. Now, they were close to the people, of course. Jameson Fawcett Brown quotes the church father Cyprian, who says that good bishops, or good elders, never departed from the old custom of consulting the people. So the deacons were close to the people. An example of kind of service they might do, they might take care of the Lord's Supper, they might distribute aid to the poor, they might visit the sick and visit the poor. Perhaps they read scriptures in the assembly. These are Gill and Clark's speculations, but they did things the church needed to get done. Now, even though they did menial menial is a pejorative term, even though they did what what might, some people might consider low-level work, they still had pretty high qualifications. They had to be be dignified. They could not be double-tongued. Double-tongued means two-faced, hypocritical, hypocritical, deceitful. They couldn't say different things to different groups of people. They could not be addicted to much wine. Of course, that doesn't say they can't drink any wine. It's much wine. They can't be a drunkard, in other words. They can't be fond of sordid gain. Now, this might be a reflection of the false teachers that Paul's battling in Ephesus when he writes this letter to Timothy, who were fond of sordid gain and who were making, taking money for their teaching most probably, as was the common practice amongst Greek sophists. And so maybe Paul's referring to that. It could refer to the fact that deacons, if they were responsible for passing out alms to the poor Christians, that takes a lot of responsibility and it would be easy to steal from the pot. Deacons also had to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they had to be dedicated Christians the way we would put it today. Mystery, of course, is the term that Paul got from the old mystery religions. He repurposed it to his own end. The mystery religion said a mystery was something that was never revealed but only, only contained esoteric knowledge that only the priest of the religion could hold in the poor alkalites would not know unless they went through all sorts of degrading rituals until they could get it. But Paul, when he talks about mystery in the Gospels, and I've done Bible studies on this in previous audios, the word mystery is connected very often, most of the time actually, with revealed. It's a mystery that has been revealed, not hidden, but revealed. So the mystery of the faith was something that's been hidden from times past. 
when they were in the Old Covenant, they didn't understand all about Jesus and the Messiah yet, but it's now been revealed and in the New Covenant, and the deacons hold to that with a clear conscience. With a clear conscience, that means they're sincere. They're not hypocrites, which is the same thing as saying they're not double-tongued. They're not phony Sunday school Christians. Put a smile on the face, go to church on Sunday, then live like hell the rest of the week. We go now to verse 10, 1 Timothy 3. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. So deacons are not appointed willy-nilly. Oh, this person likes to work hard, let's appoint them. No, you've got to watch and see if they're going to serve in the church, if they're serving from their heart and not because they've been appointed to a position. Remember, one of the requirements for an elder in the first part of the chapter was that he could not be a new convert, which means they had to be tested. You had to watch them and see if they really cared for the flock. These deacons have to really care for their service, not because they have been given an honest an office. Paul says, let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. In other words, they don't, there's not even an appearance of evil with these guys. So even though deacons is a lesser, uh, I, I say a lesser, could be seen as a lesser office than an elder, they still had to be tested and they still had high requirements. Now Paul says they need, need to be tested. It's interesting, the Greek has two words for tested. Dokomazo, which means to test with a view towards approval, and perazo, which means to test with a view toward destruction. And the English does not make the distinction, and so it's extremely confusing when you see things like God never tests anybody in James, you know. God would never test anybody. Then you read another verse where it says that God test, tested the Israelites. and God, I, can't, I don't have the scriptures in front of me, but I know there's a place where it says that God tests believers, because I did a Bible study on that one time trying to make sense out of that, and it's because there's two different Greek words for it. In English, for example, if we say the algebra test, teacher gave me a test, it would be toward my approval, not to flunk me, but to show, to prove that I know some algebra. That would be dokimazo, to test with a view towards approval. But if, on the other hand, I have a student who wants to see me fired and so provokes me every time I turn around and gives me bad evaluations, that's perazo, to test with a view of destroying me. So there's a big difference. Now, what should be tested? And again, the Greek word is dokabazo, tested with a view toward approval. We're not trying to destroy these people who are serving in the church who, are, who we are considering to be deacons. We are testing them with an understanding that they're going to prove that they're qualified to be deacons. What should be tested? Well, it could be their duties, what they're doing, or it could be their character. No, it could be both. And I would say it's probably both in my humble opinion. Now, this, this requirement that a deacon be beyond reproach, same thing with the elders, 1 Timothy 3.2, an overseer then must be above reproach, avoiding even the appearance of evil, as they tell lawyers, because supposedly lawyers have a higher ethical standard than the average person. <clears throat> and if you believe that, I've got some oceanfront property in Kansas I'd like to show you. We go to 1 Timothy 3.11. Paul says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, here's a big problem. Women, what women? Paul doesn't qualify the noun here, women, and so it's hard to know what the word is. And to add to the problem, the Greek word is ambiguous. It could be wives. So if you translate it as wives, I think the KGV and the NIV have it that way. Wives must likewise be dignified. It makes sense, but from the context to say the wives of deacons. The wives of deacons must likewise be dignified. Jameson Fawcett Brown disagrees with that and says there's no special reason why we should have special rules for wives of deacons. And he goes on further to say that if 
Paul meant deacons' wives, he would have said their wives. He would have said their women, or their wives must likewise be dignified. But he doesn't put that they are there. So that cuts against the argument that it's deacons' wives. However, paragraph of verses 8 through 13 are one paragraph about deacons. So it's logical to mention deacons' wives in the middle of such a paragraph. So that's a reasonable option. Deacons' wives must be dignified. If you have a deacon that's doing good, but his wife's going around gossiping with everybody and she's getting drunk because she's not temperate and she's not faithful and all things, well, that could hurt the ministry, hurt the deacon's ministry. I can understand why it could be deacons' wives, so I don't have any problem. Here's another option as to who, what these women are. Helpers of deacons. Women in servant roles in the house churches, as Ellison puts it. Now, Ellison distinguishes that from deaconesses, which is option three, which I'll get to in a minute. These are helpers of deacons. Romans 16.1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea. The word servant makes you think that it might be a deaconess, but Ellison said, no, it's a helper. Someone who's serving, but not necessarily a deaconess. Philippians 4.3, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Help these women who have shared my struggle. But Paul doesn't call them deaconesses. So Ellison comes up with the idea, and I think this is a sort of one-off interpretation. I haven't seen it anywhere else. That these are helpers of deacons, but they're not actually, don't have an official function in the church as deaconesses. Third option is, oh, and so who, who, what would these deacon helpers do? For example, Ellison says, well, they could care for sick women in the church. They could prepare women for baptism before and after because they would have to robe them up, and men couldn't do that too well. They would visit aged women in the church. Third option, this is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's choice, that these women that Paul mentions here in 1 Timothy 3.11 are deaconesses. It's logical. Paul is talking about church offices here. It's logical that he even mentioned deaconesses here. It's also logical he mentioned deacons' wives here too. All depends on how you translate the Greek word, wives or women. So deaconesses. So if it is deaconesses, then there's nothing wrong with women deaconesses in a church. Paul makes an explicit prohibition of women elders in a church, 1 Timothy 3.12, and he says, I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man. And, of course, that's exactly what the elders do is they teach and exercise authority. But here it's assuming that women is either, if, if you say that women are deaconesses here, which is not a slam dunk interpretation, obviously, but there's other options here. But assuming that you do interpret that as deaconesses, there's nothing wrong for a woman to be deaconesses. They're not managing people. They're not managing men. And I don't see any problem with it. And I remember I was in a Southern Baptist church at one time, and the pastor decided he was going to have some deaconesses. So he passed out the ballots, and everybody voted for the deaconesses. The next thing you know, we don't have any deaconesses. Why not? Well, it turns out that some of the women in the church didn't like the idea of someone who was not a deacon's wife to be a deaconess. deaconess. And I forgot what their complaint was, but it had, I guess it was something in the female psychology I couldn't understand, but I don't, they didn't, they didn't, I guess they didn't like the idea of deacons going to deacons meetings with women who weren't their wives. I don't know what it was, but it was a big stink. <laughs> I thought, oh, please, please don't let's just find something more important to argue about. But anyway, we didn't, we ended up not having deaconesses. I mean, it's not the end of the world either way, I guess. Here's the fourth option. This is Adam Clark suggests this, that 
the women that are mentioned in First Timothy 3.11 are women in general. It's the women in the church should be dignified, not malicious gossips for temporal faith in all things. Well, the question there is, is why? Why would Paul all of a sudden talk about women doing these things? He's talking about church offices, and all of a sudden he starts talking about women just in the middle of nothing? I mean, not in the middle of nothing, in the middle of talking about church office for, for uh, apropos of nothing, to start talking about women? I don't think so. How about elders' wives? Women, i.e. elders' wives, must be dignified. Well, that's even a further stretch. There's no reason to mention special rules for elders' wives here. He would have mentioned that earlier back up at the, when he was talking about qualifications for elders. So let's just assume that this is deacons' wives or deacon, deaconesses. Those are the two most logical interpretations of that word, women. They should not be malicious gossips. Women back then, they didn't work outside of the home. They were homebound a lot, and they dealt with a lot of other women, and that's what women like to do is, you know, gossip. Oh, did you see that? It reminds me of a student whose boyfriend, an ex-student, I should say, working in a big corp- in a corporation somewhere, and she has a boyfriend who's one of the managers in the corporation. And one day... The, this manager hires somebody. She's very smart and very qualified. She's also drop-dead gorgeous. And so, and so all the other women in the corporation went to my student and said, Did you see that beautiful girl that your boyfriend hired? And I could just see the tongues wagging. Well, I know that men gossip too, but women, let's put it this way, women have a reputation for doing this. And if you are if you're of the feminist type that don't think there's any difference between men and women, well, you can just say that there's no difference between men and women here. But I think that Paul had a reason for mentioning gossip. Maybe it was a cultural reason. Maybe it was a situation back then and not today. But at any rate, he didn't want women to be gossiping about people. I mean, just think if that beautiful woman was perfectly moral, was not trying to use her good looks to climb in the corporation, was perfectly respectful, respectful of the romantic relationship between my student and uh, and the the man boss there let's say she was clean as she could be and all of a sudden everybody's running down ah she's gonna be sleeping with the bosses with the boss in order to get what she wants you know i can hear it now women must likewise be dignified not malicious gossips but temperate that probably means not drinking too much wine faithful in all things when somebody asks her to do something she doesn't she doesn't promise to do something then not do it the word for gossips they're not supposed to be malicious gossips the greek word for that literally means slander which is the same word that's often used of the devil the slanderer diabolos the devil is a slanderer diabolos the greek for not a gossip is made diabolos the women should not be devils <laughs> i'd love to see a literal translation there the women should not be devils because I'm telling you, you think sticks and tones can hurt my bones and wor- words can never hurt me? you got a bunch of women gossiping. They can hurt a lot of people real bad. We go to 1 Timothy 3.12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Now, this is very similar to the qualifications for elders that we've already talked about in verses 2-5 through five in our last audio. And so I'm not going to go into as much detail here. The husband of one wife, that's a one-woman man. I took that to be, he, the deacon must not be a philanderer. I do not believe it means that a divorcee can't remarry a second wife and therefore he's disqualified to be a deacon. I do not think it means that a widower can remarry a second wife and therefore is disqualified from being a deacon. I do not think it means that a deacon must be married. He can't be single and thus disqualified from being a deacon. It just means he's if if he's married, he's got to be faithful to his wife and not getting anything on the side. Just as simple as that, in my humble opinion. I realize that people disagree with that. 
And if your church has a disagreement over it, remember, it's the consensus of the church that decides. It's none of my business how to decide these ambiguities. The church's business to decide who's qualified to be a deacon. Now we go here in verse 12. At the end of the verse, we see that deacons must be good managers of their children and their own households. Now this was the same qualification as in 1 Timothy 3, 4. And it's interesting. It's obvious why elders should be good managers of their children because an elder's got to manage a church. If he can't manage a home, why should he manage a church? But here, a deacon is said he must be. A deacon is required to be a good manager of his children and his household. Why? He's not managing the church. I don't know. I didn't see any commentator on this. Common, any commentators expressing an opinion on this anyway. So this is my view. I think it's just for a matter of decorum. It just looks bad to have a wild family, you know, kids out there getting drunk and getting girls pregnant and that kind of nonsense, you know. So um, I just think it's for a matter of decorum. But anyway, they're supposed to be good managers of their children. Now, does this imply that a deacon must have children? I talked about this when we talked about elders. I don't think so because of Dan Trotter's number one rule of hermeneutics. Interpret a verse as narrowly as you possibly can and don't go around with a broad interpretation, smashing everything, all the furniture in the house. Good managers of their children, I think that means if they have children. Because if they got unruly children, they give the church a bad reputation. If they have no children, it's not going to give the church a bad reputation because they don't have any unruly children. Now, I realize that's controversial. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown disagree with me. They say that a manager should have children. Again, if you don't agree with me or you don't agree with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, your church has got to decide whether a deacon should have children or not. Now, there's another controversy that came up, that comes up with this, and I really should have discussed this under elders, but I didn't. I, f I found a great article on John Piper's website, Desiring God website, written by, I forgot what his name was, Justin Taylor, I think his name was. Fantastic, a very good short article. Examining the question, examining this question, if a deacon has children, or an elder in the case of the article, if an elder has children, do they have to be a believer? So I'm going to discuss the issue with elders and realize the arguments work with deacons too, probably. First of all, there are reputable people on both sides of the issue. For example, on the side that says that children must be believers, and if an elder has non-believing children, he's disqualified. That's Douglas Wilson, the famous Douglas Wilson up in Moscow, Idaho. And then on the other side, children don't have to be believers as long as they're well-managed and under control. That's Alexander Strauch's view. I tend to believe Strauch's view, again, because I try to interpret these things as tightly, as conservatively as I can, as narrowly as I can. Now, let's see what the problem is. If we go to 1 Timothy 3.4, again, now we, I'm moving back to elders now. It says, 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. All right? That's the same as deacons. But now you go to Titus 1, 6, and you read this. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. Oh, so the requirement is that eldest children must be believers. Oh, it says it's right there, slam dunk, argument over. Well, actually, it's not over. Because Titus 1.6, the Greek word for believers, can also be translated as faithful. I just read to you the ESV version. Your children must be believers. But let me read you the Holman Christian Standard Version translation. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children. In other words, they're 
faithful to their parents, not that they're believers, but they're faithful to their parents. So there you have that delicious ambiguity. So you have to decide the issue on other grounds. Now, I'm going to take Stripe's position on this. I believe it just means that you ought to have uh, children who are well-behaved and disciplined, not necessarily believers. And, and if you have that, even if your children are not believers, you're still qualified to be an elder. So let's look at five arguments that support that view. First of all, the qualifying clause of Titus 1.6 aims at domestic submission, not salvation. Titus 1.6 said that the children should be not open to the charge of debauchery of insubordination. It doesn't say that they're believers. It just says they can't, they can't, be, can't run around chasing women going to wild parties, and they can't be insubordinate. There's lots of non-Christians who are that way. Lots of non-Christians who don't go to wild parties, who don't get girls pregnant, and who obey their parents, even though they're not saved. So that tends to make me think is the, the kids are faithful to their parents, not necessarily believers. We also look at the elders' qualification in First Timothy 3, 4, and we see that has to do with management of a household. Discipline, not belief in God. First Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. You can have non-believing children under control with all dignity. All right, so the first two arguments saying that it is not a requirement for an elder to have believing children have to do with going to the relevant verses in Titus 1, 6 and First Timothy 3, 4 and see, and we see the description of the children it has nothing to do with their belief in God but it has to do with their submission in the domestic household. Third argument that says that children don't have to be believers is because there are problems that arise if you require an elder or a deacon to have believing children. You could have hard cases very easily arise. Here's an example. What if the elder has five believing children and one non-believing? Are we really willing to say he's not a good manager of his household, assuming the non-believing child is perfectly obedient? What? And we're going to say this person's not an elder. Good elders are hard to find. You just kicked another one out. Fourth argument saying that ch children do not have to be believers. All the requirements for elders or deacons listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in and the corresponding Titus passages, they're actions of personal responsibility. For example, the elder or deacon must be a one-woman man, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, good teacher, sober, not greedy. Doesn't really, it's not really talking about belief. It's talking about actions. Why would not the requirements for the children be the same? You can have a non-believing child who is a one-woman man, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and so forth, sober, not greedy. Actually, you could have a a child who is not debauched and is and is subordinate to his parents, as Titus 1.6 requires, even though they're not believers. So that's the fourth argument, that all requirements for elders or deacons are actions of personal responsibility, not personal belief. Here's the fifth argument, that, an elder, that it is possible for an elder to have a non-believing child and still be qualified to be an elder. Requiring a child to believe is to require responsibility for salvation of another. And that can't be scripturally. I, you know, God required Adam and Eve to believe in him. And look how well they did. He was a pretty good father. Don't you think he managed the Garden of Eden pretty well? But look what happened. And sometimes you got parents who do a darn good job raising their kids, and they're perfectly qualified to be the elder of a church, and they got a kid that acts like Adam and Eve. They rebel in perfect situations. Are we going to blame God for that? Are we going to blame the elder for what his child did by not believing in God? 
We go now to verse 13, 1 Timothy 3. Paul continues, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now what does high standing mean? Well, here's some options. That means they're ready to be promoted to elder. Adam Clark believes that. I don't believe that. For one thing, if you're a good deacon, that doesn't mean you're qualified to be an elder. An elder manages the church. A deacon might be good at serving, but he might be totally unqualified to be an elder. I don't know why Clark says that. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown deny it. Gill denies it. God bless them. I deny it, too. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, even though he denies it, say that many understand it that way. The deacon's qualified to be an elder. It's kind of like a stepping stone, a hierarchy, an organizational hierarchy, which is anathema to me. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that Paul wouldn't hold out to every deacon in Ephesus a chance to become an elder because they wouldn't all be qualified. This is what I just said. The idea of moving upwards in church offices in this early time of church purity when the church was young was as yet unknown. That was later when the Catholic Church came along. We have all this hierarchy. You got more church offices than a dog has fleas. So what does this high standing mean? Well, Ellison says it could be respect within the outside community or respect within the church, as John Gill says. I think that's more likely it, a high standing in the church. could be a high standing in the eyes of God. John Gill says high standing in the eyes of God. Because of that, they get extra gifts and graces. Okay, high standing in front of God, high standing in the presence of the church. Here's another interesting option. It means a high degree of glory in the afterlife. Because they're good deacons? Well, that's more of a stretch if you ask me. I just think it means I standing in the church and before God, maybe. But at any rate, notice the dignity that Paul gives to such a menial job. Deacons, is, you know, they take care of grubby things that are necessary. Every church has things that are necessary to be taken care of. Polishing down, killing all the COVID-19 viruses on the seats and stretching the seats out within six feet so we don't pollute one another. Well, that's a menial job. But Paul has all kinds of requirements so that deacons might get a high standing before God and before the church. And the deacons will get a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You can look at that two ways. You could say a great confidence in the subjective belief and trust in Christ Jesus that the deacon will get because of his good work and good character. That's that's a subjective view of faith, great confidence in in, in in, in his personal faith. Or it could be great confidence in the faith of Christianity. And that would mean that he has great confidence in going out and spreading the gospel. I think it's subjective faith here. I think that's the easiest reading. Great confidence in his belief in Christ Jesus because of his service as a deacon. We go to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, this, of course, is Paul's theme here for the last couple of chapters, is how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, in the church. That's why these letters are called pastoral epistles. Timothy might have been acting as a pastor in Ephesus. I think he was probably going around strengthening the churches as an apostle, but even as an apostle, you would have to teach elders in the church how they're supposed to act. So, in that sense, it's a pastoral epistle even if Timothy himself is not mainly a pastor, as some people like to point out. I'm writing these things to you. What things? Last couple of things. The things concerning church order and church government. I want the men to lift up their holy hands and pray without argument. I want the women to be modestly adorned. I don't want women to be teaching or exercise authority over men, etc. And also I want qualified elders that don't get drunk and who are one-women men. So Paul's writing these things, hoping to come 
to you before long. Now, this shows that Paul didn't have a hotline to heaven about his future. People think because Paul had revelations, therefore who? He didn't have to act as a human being. He didn't have to make plans. He didn't have to be in the dark about the future. Folks, revelations come rarely, even in Paul's life. When, and they usually come at special times when Paul needed special encouragement. Like when he was in jail in Jerusalem at the end of the third journey. And, and Jesus came to say, stay true to your heavenly vision, to the vision you had on the road to Damascus. Stay true to it. Keep going. I'm not going to leave you. I think it came to him in, in Troas, the Macedonian. That was a dream. Well, yeah, the Macedonian call. He had a dream. That was probably from the Lord. And also in Corinth, I think also he had a dream. He says, there are many believers in this place. I'm going from my memory, please. I hope I'm right about all that, but I do know that there was a lot of visions that Paul had, but they were at special times when Paul needed special encouragement. But generally, he had to act just like you and I do. He had to pray about, should I come see these people or should I not come? I hope I can, but I don't know that I can. Hoping means a confident expectation of the future. You're confident, but you're not dead sure. Now, come to you from where? Paul is hoping to come to Timothy from where? Well, remember now, assuming this is, I'm assuming the two-imprisonment view at Rome that he was, had been released from Rome when he wrote First Timothy. Now, this is what Wallace says that Paul did. When he was released from prison in Rome, he took Timothy with him to Ephesus. He encountered false teachers in the church at Ephesus, and then Paul left Timothy in Ephesus and went on to Macedonia. And so now Paul is talking about when I come back to you in Ephesus, coming back from Macedonia. This is Daniel Wallace, the renowned scholar at Dallas Seminary. He knows what he's talking about, I'm sure. I don't know how he comes up with this. Maybe it's just his speculation, but it, it's reasonable. Jameson Fawcett Brown disagrees. He says that Paul's writing from Corinth after his first imprisonment in Rome. He got out of prison in Rome. He goes to Corinth. Timothy goes to Ephesus, and now Paul's writing from Corinth. I don't know how he knows that either. I think these are speculations. But at any rate, whatever the speculation is, whatever the truth is, Paul is planning to come to see Timothy for long. But in case I am delayed, see, he didn't know. I want to come short, but maybe I'll come to, I'm delayed. Does that mean lack of faith? I can hear the faith message people saying, oh, Paul had a lack of faith. If he'd have just believed, he'd have come to see Paul sooner. He'd have come to see Timothy sooner. If he'd have just believed. No. So in case I can't come to tell you about how you should conduct yourself in the household of God, I'm writing to you so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the of course, when he says household of God, that's referring to the temple, an ancient tabernacle, which is called a household, a temple, a place where God lives. The church is where God lives, too. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, that, that Greek word church, the ecclesia, it literally means to call out. It was used in Greek to refer to any kind of town assembly in Greece. And these assemblies are famous because that's the birthplace of democracy where everybody got out into the Penix, into in Athens, and they, and they got out there in the open field and they started debating everything. I went to visit the Penix. My wife and I climbed up on the, the rostrum there, the stone that they spoke from, and looked around. I said, wow, and there was no, no tourists there. It's amazing. One of the most famous places in, in the world, and there was nobody there but my wife and me. You know, the city of Athens was just covered with tourists, but nobody wanted to go see the Penix. But I did, and this, everybody, this is a place where everybody debated things, and this is what ecclesia meant, and it's translated assembly. A lot of times in English, it's translated as church. And there's a reason for that. I think the gospel writers used the term ecclesia because New Testament churches were to reflect that characteristic of Greek assemblies. People talked, and they debated things, and they decided things. Churches are supposed to discuss things because things come up all the time. They're not supposed to sit back like sheep in an air-conditioned building in a pew listening to some preacher feed pablum to them or even good stuff. It doesn't matter whether it's good or whether it's weak. 
Churches are not supposed to sit there like, and church members are not supposed to be mute receptacles of canned wisdom coming from a big shot pastor. They're supposed to be exploring the scripture and discussing the scripture with one another and discussing practical things. How do we handle this sin and I miss? How do I handle my sin, et cetera, et cetera? Not supposed to be sitting there listening to lectures like they're going to some kind of college class or something. Paul says that he now he's talking about the church of the living God, which is the pillar and support of the truth. When he says the living God, that's opposed to the dead idols who live in their temples, but God is a living God who lives in his household. The church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, this what is this pillar? It's interesting here because his is what Adam Clark says about the pillar. Never was there a greater variety of opinions on any portion of the sacred scripture than has been on this and the following verse. Commentators and critics have given senses and meanings till there is no meaning to be seen. It would be almost impossible, after reading all that has been said on this passage, for any man to make up his own mind. To what or to whom does the pillar and ground of the truth refer? Well, that's a high degree of difficulty Adam Clark has put in front of us. Reading this English translation, this is the New American Standard Bible, it sounds like it's the church which is the pillar and support of the truth. It doesn't have to be, though. It could refer to Timothy being the, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, the pillar and support of the truth. Or it could be God, the church of the living God, God who is the pillar and support of the truth. It could be the mystery of godliness, which comes next in the next verse. The pillar in support of the truth, the mystery of godliness. If you, There's no punctuation in the Greek. If you just keep going to the next verse, and it, it could be that. Well, I don't know. It sounds to me like Paul meant the church as the pillar in support of the truth. I don't have any reason to deviate from that, despite the wide difference of opinion on what this pillar in support of the truth is. This is a construction metaphor. There's lots of construction metaphors in the scriptures. Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation. Firmly placed. That's Jesus he's talking about. This costly cornerstone of the building. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So Jesus is the cornerstone for a building, and the building is the church. 2 Timothy 2:19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Another building metaphor. The firm foundation is this seal, the Lord who knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So, and also, I think it's in Corinthians, and I forgot the exact reference. Paul refers to the church as God's building, and the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Metaphors like that. Buildings, buildings, buildings. Now, these construction metaphors, when Paul taught this construction metaphor, Paul, God is the pillar, or the church is the pillar in support of the truth. Paul could very well be referring to the fact that the church was in trouble of being knocked over because of these false Gnostic-type heretics that he was having to deal with in Ephesus and that Timothy was having to deal with. They were going to wreck the church. And Paul says, no, the church is the pillar of the truth. So now we go to 1 Timothy 3.16, and we'll finish up this audio and the chapter, 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul continues, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, most of this is pretty obvious. This was a confession that was a sort of like a creedal confession in the early church, kind of before the Nicene Creed and before the Apostles' Creed. This was a creed that was floating around, a confession, if you will. People would confess this and say, I believe this, to show that they were Christians. 
Most of the creed is very obvious except for one phrase seen by angels which we'll spend some time on. Great is the mystery of godliness. Again, mystery is something which is concealed before but revealed now, even though the mystery of religions like that said that a mystery was something that's, that's concealed forever. And godliness, how it what it takes to be godly was concealed, and now it's revealed in the New Testament scriptures. Read Romans 6, 7, and 8, for example. It's revealed how, how you become godly. It's basically by having Jesus live in you through his Holy Spirit living in you. Great is this mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, that refers to Jesus' incarnation. He was vindicated in the Spirit. How was he vindicated? As Adam Clark says, by his resurrection, that vindication, that proves that he's the Messiah. By the miracles the apostles did, it proves that he's the Messiah. By the miracles that Jesus did, that word vindicated can also be translated justified. Justification by faith or vindication by faith in James is vindication by the works you do. And in Paul, it's justified means you're declared righteous by what Jesus does for you. So that translation is extremely important, whether it's vindicated or justified. Here, Jesus doesn't need to be declared righteous, and so I think vindicated is the better translation, obviously. Now, Jesus, in this common confession, is said to be seen by angels. And I'm going to give you six options as to who those angels could be, at least six. Option number one, angels who long to know what God was doing with fallen mankind. Now, this is a great, this is an interesting thing. Angels in heaven want to know what's going on down here, especially when it deals is concerned with the plan of salvation. Let's look at some scriptures to that effect. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For, I think, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So angels are looking at the apostles to see what they're going to do. Ephesians 3.10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Though rulers, let's say those are angels, and they're the manifold wisdom of God might be made, be made known through the church, through the agency of the church, to the angels in the heavenly places. First Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So the gospel which is being preached by the Holy Spirit are things into which angels long to look. So angels up there in heaven want to know what's going on down here with the progress of the gospel. So that's option number one is what the confession means, seen by angels. Jesus was seen by angels. Option number two, Jesus was watched over by angels as his during his temptation experience. Matthew 4:11. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The devil left him in the wilderness. Mark 1, 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. All right, that's option number two. That's from Ellison. Option number three from Ellison. This angels in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was seen by angels in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22:43. now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Option number four, immediately after the resurrection, Jesus was seen by angels. These are the angels in the resurrection appearances. Luke 24, 4, while they were perplexed, the women were perplexed about this. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Luke 24:23. 23. They, they, the women did not find his body. They came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels. That's the women reporting to the apostles in the, in the room in Jerusalem. 
they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. John 20:12, and she saw two angels in white. I think that's Mary Magdalene saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet. So the resurrection angels, Jesus was seen by them. That's option number four. Option number five, the angels beholding his ascension. Option number six, the angels beholding his exalted heavenly enthronement. That's when Jesus was seen by angels. Actually, here's option number eight. Take angels in the sense of messengers, because angelos, angelos, angel, can be translated as messenger as well as angel. Some people say that Jesus was seen by his messengers in the world. And he was proclaimed among the nations. Now, I'm not going to take an option on what seen by angels was. Jesus was seen by angels a good bit, as we see, as we see by going through all these different options. And Jesus was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. So proclaimed among the nations refers to the worldwide preaching of the gospel and believed, as Gill says, was a marvelous thing considering the reproach and ignominy Christ lay under. He was a crucified criminal, and yet people believed him as God. And then he was taken up in glory. He ascended in glory. He ascended to glory. And that's a great way to finish chapter 3 with that confession. In our next audio in chapter 4, Paul will take on the heretics. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 